reading of today's passage. A little bit of an unusual uh, message. Um, going to focus on racism. This passage is actually not one that we're going to stay on, but it's such a foundational passage for justice issues such as racism, and by the way, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, such as the unborn. Here it is, one verse from Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Okay, church, uh, this is what we've got. Uh, Three weeks in a row, a special message. And if you're newer here, this is not normal what we do. Normally, I go through books of the Bible about a year and a half into Ephesians, but I just felt back in December that um, we needed some special messages. And so the first week, it was a family talk about our core convictions, the values God's built into us, as well as a couple of dreams He's put in my heart, our need for more space, especially children, uh, a little bit about my future. So that was a family talk. And I'm going to ask you again, if, if Woods Edge is your church home, you haven't listened to it yet, I'm asking you to listen, please, so we'd be on the same page. Second week, last week, we talked about home church groups because of our threefold purpose, love Jesus, journey together, bring hope. The biggest challenge for us and most churches is journey together. It's just a challenge. So we talked about home church groups, how the early church had both the large group celebration and the small group church churches. And uh, if you haven't listened to that one, I'm asking you to listen to that one, those two. Today, racism. For some months, we've been planning a special talk on racism. And we might ask, well, well why racism? There are a lot of other pressing causes. Well, partly, partly because it is such a volatile issue in our society today, and, it's, and the tension is escalating. Uh, also, if you were here two weeks ago, the family talk, God has given us such a heart for diversity in the kingdom, especially racial diversity and ethnic diversity. It just so uh, reflects the heart of God. So that's another reason. But also, I I was just thinking this week that I I know many of you are from other countries, and we love that about that. But all of us from the the United States, we understand the uh, egregious sins of our country when it comes to race. And maybe for all of those reasons, and just what the Spirit of God wants us to do, we're going to hit racism. But let me say, church, um, I, I know I can get pretty passionate about anything I'm preaching on. I, I, very, I feel deeply about things. And I, I certainly feel deeply about this today. But overall, I think, Woods Edge, you guys are doing a great job when it comes to these topics. But, but I don't think any of us, you know, have kind of got per- perfect here, so... So maybe God has some things to say to you and to me. All right. Um, Oh, I've got one other uh, preface thing. You cannot understand the Bible, and certainly this topic in the Bible, without understanding something about the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. That is, there was a people division, an ethnic division in the Bible that runs right through it from Genesis 12 through the end of the Bible. And you can't make sense of the Bible without understanding this division. This is what happened. Genesis 1 through 11, uh, God's just dealing with individuals. Then in Genesis 12, God says, I'm going to create a special group of people through whom I'm going to work to bring salvation to all the nations of the earth. 
So he started with Abraham and created the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. That's when they started, Genesis 12. But the Jews lost sight of their calling to be a light to the nations and to be a vehicle to bring salvation to the nations. They turned inward, which is our human sinful tendency. They turned inward and uh, felt superior to folks, folks on the outside, felt that uh, those folks on the outside, uh, God didn't really care about them, and they uh, treated them with exclusion, hostility, and condescension. The word for that is ethnocentrism, and I'm going to just do a little bit of vocabulary this morning. Ethnos, Greek word people, go ahead and turn that phone off, go ahead. Uh, ethnos, um, uh, people, centrism, you know, we're the center, we're the center of the universe. And, and by the way, um, I remember taking a Chinese history course at Rice and how the Chinese throughout the Middle Ages felt they were the, the center of the universe. This is not an uncommon thing for peoples. And the Jews went right into it, even though they were uh, God's people. And they felt that, you know, they were special, more loved, superior. And uh, in fact, they would pray daily, God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile, <laughs> you know, a non-Jew. Lord, thank you. Uh, they would not have, have a meal with, with uh, Gentiles. I mean, how big is the division for that? They, they wouldn't even have a meal. They call them dogs. So, the ethnic division that runs right through the Bible that God attacks in the New Testament, that ethnic division is, is if anything, deeper than the black-white uh, tension today. And to understand the Bible, we've got to understand the deep, hostility and divisions, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, between Jew and everybody else, Jew and Gentile. All righty, with all of that as the background, I'm ready to start. Now, we could give a dozen arguments from the Bible about racism. We only have time for four, but that's enough. The first one is this. The cross of Christ crushes racism. Now, I'm going to go back to a passage in Ephesians and I'm going to read it, and it has huge implications for racism. Just stay with me the next few minutes, would you, would you please? Ephesians 2.11. He's writing to Gentile Christians in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. These were not Jews, Gentiles. This is what he says. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that is physically, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Uh, Paul's on that one. The sign from Abraham of Jewish people, Jewish males, was circumcision. They derisively referred to everybody else as the uncircumcision. They're the circumcision. They're special. He goes on. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off, far off from God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one, us both one, the deepest division of the Bible between peoples, Jew and non-Jew, we are now one. It is no longer, from Genesis 12 on, Jews and everybody else, we're both one in a new multiracial, multi-international, multilinguistic society of people, the church of Jesus Christ, who do not get in on the basis of race, color, ethnicity, but on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. So it's a new day. It's a new day with the church. 
And so that ethnocentrism and its cousin racism have got to go. Now, he says he's brought us both into one in 14. And he has broken down in his flesh, in his body on the cross, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Again, he's underscoring it. There is no longer Jew and Gentile, two different groups. It were now one person, one new person. That's the metaphor, one body of Christ, thus making peace. And then in 16, the grandest verse of all on this topic, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. You get that last verse? He might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles, together to God. Now, what, God, what he's saying here is that all of the peoples around the world, whatever uh, ethnicity, race, whatever they're from, he has brought them to God because of the cross. Now, if he's taken all of us around the world and brought us together to God, he has brought us together with each other, hasn't he not? So he has united through the cross us to God, us to one another in Christ. Church, the cross of Christ crushes racism. It is the solution to racism. In some ways, it is the only real solution to racism. Where do you read that in social media? Or hear it on the news? Now, there are some other human reasons, but this is the foundation because this is what removes the sin barriers that separate us from one another, brings us together forever and ever in Jesus Christ. The cross crushes racism, the answer to racism, and every form of ethnic hostility around the globe today is the shed blood of Jesus. Isn't it something? The blood of Jesus Christ is the end of racism. The blood of Jesus is thicker than the blood from your parents and your ancestors. It's the only solution. And that is largely missing from the conversation today, even from Christians, even from pastors. It is the cross that is our solution. Colossians 3.11, talking about us gathered and together in Christ, and he says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, that's Jew and Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, those who are uneducated, they look down upon, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, that last phrase, Christ is all and in all. What that says is that for every single one of us in Christ, this is who we are. What's my identity? This 63-year-old pastor up here before you that you're looking at, what is my core identity? It is not white. It is not American. It is not Texan. It is not pastor. It is not my, my, my hobby, runner. Had knee surgery recently, so that's in jeopardy. It's, it, my fundamental identity is not any of those things. Christ is all and in all. This is who I am. I am a blood-bought, much-loved follower of the living God. That's who I am. And that is who you are. Now, love your country. Be 
thankful that you've got the racial background that you've got. Be thankful that you've got the sport, the job you have. But if you define yourself as an Exxon engineer from um, the United States, if that is your identity, that is idolatry. Because something else is more important to you than Jesus Christ. If anything else is your core identity than Jesus Christ, something is wrong. That's idolatry. Friends, it is the cross of Christ that crushes great racism, most soundly. Secondly, the mission of Jesus crushes racism. And this is what I mean. Jesus announces his mission in Luke 4. He, goes through, he returns to his hometown of Nazareth. Some of us are going to be in Nazareth in about a week. And he goes to his hometown. He goes to the synagogue on Saturday, their day of worship. By the way, throughout the New Testament, Jesus is there every week, just as his custom. One of the reasons why we ought to be in God's house worshiping every week that we're in town. He, he's, he's there, and they ask him to read a passage. He chooses what he wants. He turns to the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, to 61, Isaiah 61, which is a great passage announcing the coming Messiah is coming. The Savior King of the universe is coming. He reads that passage, sits down, and says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. He's saying, this, this, this little boy that grew up here in Nazareth, the carpenter's son, He's saying, I am the Messiah, God, King. Whoa, they can handle that. You know, they don't do anything radical at this point. But then Jesus um, uh, is a little bit in your face because he tells them two stories in a row that attacks their ethnocentrism right at the start of his mission. This is what he says, Luke 4, 25 and 26. He says, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut, shut up three years and six months. Then a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. That's Gentile country. Only to this widow, Gentile widow in the land of Sidon who was a widow. He's saying, God passed over all the Jewish widows. Get this. He healed a Gentile widow. Then he tells them another story. Same point, that God loves the foreigner also. Luke 4, 27, there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile. He's saying, I am the end of your ethnocentrism. Give it up. They were so furious they marched him to a cliff, a cliff that we're going to be at, some of us are going to be at in a couple of weeks, and they tried to throw him off the cliff. Their racial, ethnic hostility, prejudice, discrimination, condescension was so strong, they were furious, and they wanted to kill him. And Jesus kicks that ethnocentrism in the teeth. I don't care. It's got to stop. He's saying, my house, my kingdom is not about God preferring one people over the other people or choosing one people only and not the other people. My kingdom is wide open to anybody who will have faith in Jesus. I love the way John Piper puts it. He's so helpful on this topic when he says, what Jesus is saying here is, I am, I am the end of ethnocentrism, which is tantamount. I am the end of racism. 
throughout the rest of the Gospels, Jesus talks this way. He tells a story about, uh, he makes up a story about the Good Samaritan, and, and, and uh, the hero of the story is not a Jewish priest or a Jewish Levite, but a foreigner, a hated foreign Samaritan in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He, uh, the event happens with uh, ten lepers getting healed. Only one comes back, and, and that one is the Gentile, and he commends that Gentile. Um, other passages, Mark 7, he says, uh, my house, he, Jesus says, quoting Isaiah, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, that, that passage is misunderstood some. We, we often take it that, that this is to be a house of prayer for all the nations of the world. That's not the point in Isaiah. The point in Isaiah is this, is that my house is going to be a house of prayer that all the nations come from. It, it's a house for all the nations for prayer. All the nations, Gentiles, the ones you're excluding that you call dogs, this is for them to come and pray for. At the end of his life, when he commissions the disciples, when he commissions us, he says, go and make disciples of all the nations, ethnos, all the peoples of the world. Jesus had a global vision. Jesus was the end of ethnocentrism in every way. Thirdly, the command to love crushes racism. When, when you think about Jesus asks, what's the greatest commandment? And he quickly gives, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. But then he goes right on and says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. In other words, it's not enough just to love God. If you're not loving your neighbor, you're not loving God. They go together. Can't separate them. You ask for one, I give you two. Love God, love your neighbor. And then he, he just continues that theme in the scriptures, you know, the golden rule, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So, guys, the, the measure of, of, of being a follower of Jesus is not that you go to a church like Wood's Edge or that you read the Bible or know the Bible or give to God or, or serve in Sunday school. The only mark is loving people. That's the badge. It's that important. So in 1 Corinthians 13, that whole chapter basically says, if you don't have love, it doesn't matter what you have. This is paramount. This is supreme, loving people. Now, let me ask you, does this kind of selfless love, is it compatible with any kind of racial hostility, exclusion, pride, prejudice, bias, discrimination of any kind? Love sees the best in people. Love does the best for people. Love sacrifices the best for people. Love wants the best for people. Love treats people like we want to be treated. In fact, love treats people as if that was Jesus Christ in the flesh. How is that kind of love compatible with any kind of racial or ethnic hostility? It is not. It is not. Love seeks to understand people. Church, Woods Edge, do you seek to understand what it's like to be a young black male walking down the street and considered suspect and dangerous just because of your skin color? Or to be driving down the street and be considered suspect and dangerous just because of your skin color? Do you seek to understand? Do you ask? Do you talk? Um, help me understand from a person of a different race. Not just black, white, any race. Any differences? Do you seek to understand? That's love. C.S. Lewis has, has a classic... Uh, analogy point about uh, loving people. I'm going to say it. You've heard it before. You've been around here. 
Uh, but, but, but think of it in light of racism. Think of it. Here we go. He said, it is hardly possible for us to think too often or too deeply about the glory of our neighbor. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption so that you now meet, if you meet at all, only in a nightmare. He says, all day long, we are to some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors are everlasting splendors. Now the next time you think about racial or ethnic hostility, bias, discrimination, exclusion of any kind whatsoever, think of it in light of that. There are no ordinary people. We all bear the image of our God. Fourthly, one more, the diversity of heaven crushes racism. Revelation 5.9 is one example of this kind of passage in Revelation. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And God emphasizes this passage and others that people in heaven are going to be from every single people group there is, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, every single one, from everyone, for God, for all eternity, by the blood of Jesus. That is how we will be redeemed. I've told you guys before about this experience that I had 15 years ago in Dubai that I, I just so marked me. This is what happened. I'm in Dubai. Uh, traveling through, uh, visiting some f folks there. And, um, you know, Dubai is, is, because it has a lot of money, they hire foreign workers. 85% of Dubai is expat. People from all over, unskilled laborers and skilled laborers. In fact, you guys know Halliburton's headquarters is still in Dubai. And um, it, it's just expat. Now, I, Muslims can't have a legal church. They have to have an underground church. But uh, all the expats, they can do church on Sunday. So I go to one of these churches that, that's, that has some English speaking in it. Now, this church is actually a conglomeration of eight different congregations of eight different languages. So I go to the English speaking congregation, of course, and I walk in and there are all these flags from all over the world because there are people from all over the world in the English speaking congregation. And I'm, I'm standing there, I'm kind of looking around. And I, I notice that people are pouring in, they're, they're, they're Africans and they're East Asians and they're South Asians and they're Europeans and they're Australians and they're Americans and they're all over and not one single group predominates. It's just a glorious diversity. And I get sort of excited. I think, man, this is a picture of heaven. This kind of glorious diversity. 
And it is. And guys, that kind of diversity where the only thing uniting us is the shed blood of Jesus, that really glorifies God, who alone can be the real basis for bringing us together in unity. Church, I imagine that uh, there's not two or three of you in the room that had any problem with what I'm saying, that uh, you were already convinced before you came in. I just, you, you wouldn't stay at a place like Wood's Edge if you had much racial bias. But um, what, what's the response to us? Well, how can we respond to this? First of all, I want us to know the biblical perspective, and particularly that the foundation is the cross of Christ, because that's missing from the conversation. But all these other reasons, and I could have given more. I want us to know that, be clear on that. But secondly, here's a second response. Do not assume that you are free of racism. Let me tell you my background. I grew up in a small town in Texas. And uh, it was segregated. When I started schools, uh, there were completely separate schools, blacks and whites. Black neighborhood on this side of town, white neighborhood on this side of town. Schools completely separate, segregated. Certainly the churches were completely segregated. And just life was completely segregated. It's called the Jim Crow era in the United States from roughly 1865 at the end of the Civil War to about 1965 with some important civil rights legislation. But um, that, that, that's the world I grew up in. And a part in legislation was passed in Congress in 1965, and we started seeing a few sprinkling of a few black students came into our class. I remember Clifford Sterling and others. But it wasn't until my junior year that they stopped having two separate schools in my little town in Texas. Up until my junior year, we basically had segregated schools. That's my background. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, I reacted against that. Uh, the way God wired me, I, I abhorred that racism. And uh, I, I even took some pride that, you know, I, I wasn't like that. By the way, some of you probably have some pride that you're not racist. Those other folks are. The last few months, as I've been studying and reading books on this topic, I, I, I no longer feel that I'm free of racism. <laughs> and I doubt you are either. And, and so my second response is this. Don't assume you're free of it. Be open to the Spirit of God exposing any racism in you and flee to the cross of Christ for good, forgiveness when he does. Thirdly, you know, this is philosophical, not practical, but it's so important. You've, we've got to see ourselves at heart, not in terms of our race or anything else, as I've talked before, but in terms we are blood-bought followers of Jesus. That's who I am, no matter what race or ethnicity or nation. And then fourthly, the real practical one is, is that this, pursue racial diversity, racial harmony whenever and wherever you can. Be the first to cross the racial barrier is, is the way it's often put. If you're in a work environment or a, a 24-hour fitness environment, a gym, if you're in a neighborhood, a, a community, a church, if, whatever environment you're in, if you see signs of racism, uh, don't just let it go. Speak up. Stand up. Uh, remember that passage where we started on? God loves justice, and he loves those who love justice and mercy, and it ought to matter to us. Uh, ask questions uh, from folks who are, look differently than you do. Difference in various, what's it like? Help me understand. What do I need to learn from you? Don't assume that you cannot learn from somebody of your race. Stick your neck out and ask some questions. Pursue racial diversity 
and racial harmony. You know, we want Houston to be a great city of God. Well, it will not happen apart from these barriers being completely melted and broken down. Okay, let me wrap it up. I've been reading a Martin Luther King biography. And in 1963, he's in a jail in Birmingham. In fact, he's in and out of jail during the early 60s a lot. And, and he's criticized by other pastors, I think both black and white pastors, for being too extremist. And, and he writes this beautiful letter back, and I'm going to quote part of it. He says, there, <clears throat> there was a time when the church was very powerful, in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. But the judgment of God is upon the church today as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Church, the job of Wood's Edge and this score is not thermometer reflecting, it's thermostat influencing the whole city of Houston and beyond. And God's heart, that's the end of racism. Because as we see in the scriptures, Jesus Christ is the end of racism. The blood of Jesus is the end of racism. The blood of Jesus is thicker than the blood of your parents. That's our perspective. Stand with me. Lord, I thank you for a church that largely gets this, but Lord God, none of us have arrived. Help us all to love like you love and to see ourselves with the identity that you see us in. Bless these, your people, Lord God, and transform our city and our country and across the world and all these barriers. In Christ's name, amen.